And let's open our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Thessalonians is one of those small letters in the Bible, and so, so the Bible may be new enough to you that you don't know where to find that, but, but you can find it on page 1169 in the Bibles that are provided for you. Paul is describing for this brand new church, this church plant, the power of the gospel at work in Thessalonica. And so we see Paul writing to encourage them, writing to remind them of the way the gospel works in his life and in his ministry. And so listen as I read 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. You know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise for men, not from you or anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. Let's bow as I pray for us. Father in heaven, we rejoice in this gospel message, this good news that you announce to us. Lord, I pray that as we hear your word and your spirit applies it to our hearts, that we would be willing to, to listen, to understand. Father in heaven, that we would, we would see the good news that is here, that we would be emboldened to share this gospel. And so, Father, we pray for those in our, in our congregation that are sharing the gospel. We thank you for the opportunities we had at Vacation Bible School this week with children here to, to hear the message of Jesus Christ. For those that respond, Lord, we pray for, for the ongoing conversations we, we will have with with families and, and with children as, as we follow up. Lord, we also pray for those that are serving uh, in, in the, the far corners of the world this summer. Lord, we pray for Vicki Robinson as she leaves today to serve in Tanzania. Lord, we pray for her ministry serving in Vacation Bible School with, with Wycliffe Bible translators and their families, that she would be used by you to make the gospel known. Lord, we thank you for the, the connection she has to Tanzania through her son and his family, Jeff and Holly. We pray for their gospel ministry, making the gospel known by translating your word. Lord, we pray for Greg Horsky as he serves this summer in Ukraine. We pray that the gospel would grow uh, into the recesses of his heart, that he would give himself to you. Lord, I pray that you would give him clarity on a, on a, on a path forward and the possibility of, of missions as part of his vocation. Lord, we pray for, for Doug and Masha Shepard, who will be leading him and the other interns this summer in Ukraine. We pray for their ongoing ministry as they plant a church and see the, the, the gospel take root in Ukraine. Father in heaven, we ask that you would do that kind of work in our hearts now, that you would show us the places where we 
rest upon our own comfort or convenience, where we rest upon our own desires. And Lord, that you would change our hearts, that you would make us follow after the, the things that matter most to you. Lord, make us a church that is bold in our witness for Jesus Christ. We come praying in Jesus' name. Amen. Look back at that first line of what I read this morning from the Apostle Paul. He says in verse 1, You know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. It was not a failure, but we can imagine if we are the, those reading this letter, because he is still on his, this missionary journey. He passed through Thessalonica, and he's now in Corinth writing the letter back, but, but his journey isn't yet complete, so we can imagine ourselves perhaps as his sending agency. The, his home church at Antioch, reading this kind of report and thinking, well, but is it a failure? Has this missionary journey already failed? Because we just have to read what he admits to us in this report, that he suffered and was insulted in Philippi before he arrived in Thessalonica, thrown in jail, kept there, only, only freed by the, the miracle of an earthquake. He in Thessalonica was, was led out of the city with his life under threat. We see his admission in, in verse 4 that there are some that think he was teaching based on error or impure motives, that he had personal desires that he wanted to see fulfilled. We see in verse 5, again, the complaint that others said he used flattery or that he was in it for the, the money. He was greedy. Or verse 6, the idea that he was seeking his own glory, the praise from other men. And so we might look at this list, this admission by the Apostle Paul, and, and conclude he was a failure. Because think of the standards by which we would normally measure. Paul's ministry is filled with suffering, opposition. He has no wealth, no power, no prestige. He sounds like a failure. And particularly in contrast to the ancient orders who would have, who would have passed through these cities. Now, to us, listening to somebody spout about some philosophical idea seems the kind of thing that we would squeeze into a classroom. That's not the kind of thing that would, would gain a large crowd. But, but the ancient orators passing through the, the, these Greek cities were, were really, in some sense, the rock stars of the day. They would, they would draw the paparazzi like a, like a bankable Hollywood actor today. They were men of wealth and power and prestige. And when they came into a town, what measurement would you use to determine their success? How big was the crowd? What did they say about it? How much money was put into the coffers? You, th those are the measurements of success for a man who comes preaching through an ancient city. And so by those standards, Paul's ministry is a failure. Now, we might say, well, but those are ancient standards, and I don't listen to any philosophy of any sort at all today, so I don't have this same kind of problem. But don't we? Don't we tend to measure our success by those same kinds of standards? Our own personal comfort in life. This shouldn't be this hard. This shouldn't be opposed. We measure it by human standards of wealth. How much money 
how much success do I have? And we measure it by bank statements or profit reports. We measure based on how big the crowds are, how, how wide our influence is. And so by those standards, ancient or modern, Paul is a failure. What is he to show for his ministry? Poverty, weakness, ill repute? That's, that's, that's the summary statement given by one commentator. Well, by human standards, Paul is a failure. And yet he point blank in verse 1 says, you know, brothers, you know this to be true. Our visit to you was not a failure. I mean, is this wishful, naive kind of thinking? Is this him sort of, of whitewashing the history? I mean, it's, it's recent history. It's just weeks or months prior. But he's trying to put on a good face for, for the home church in Antioch. If they're going to keep sending money to support him, then he better have something to show for it. Is this some sort of publicity spin. Uh, 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 you know, this is the way a PR firm today would, would make sure the message got out there on Facebook. That Paul, No, 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 Paul is not a failure. This is a great success. Is this just fake news being thrown at us? Because Paul admits he suffered. He was insulted. I mean, look at, look at verse 2, his admission there. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know. Now, sadly, I think if I'd been on this mission team, that's where it would have ended. Like, this is a terrible idea. I did not sign up for this. We're going to be thrown in prison, our lives put at risk, and we're going we're to have constant opposition. No, this plan does not work at all. I would like a missions team with a, perhaps a, a tropical location that we could go to, some convenient ministry that happens at, in, in manageable chunks for me, and I would like people to tell me, as soon as I finish, what a great job I have been doing. That's the kind of missions team that I would want to be part of. So, so I fear that if I'd been part of this team, that it would stop there. Now, thankfully, Paul's view of the gospel is bigger than mine. And so verse 2 continues. He, he says, we'd previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. Do you hear the defiance in that? But I don't care how big the opposition is, with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel. Do you hear the boldness in the apostle, in his ministry? He, he's not measuring it by the standards of the world of, of wealth and fame and power and influence, of convenience and comfort. He's measuring it by God's standards. No, in spite of opposition, in spite of being, of, of suffering, being insulted, thrown in prison, beaten. In spite of that, we dared to tell you God's gospel. It's the gospel that belongs to God. It's the gospel, and, and God is the one who is helping the Apostle Paul. And so, so let's, let's look at Paul's ministry report here, and, and let's see the ways in which he measures it to be a success. But also as we go through, let's apply it to ourselves, to our own hearts, because we see that we would be tempted to measure it by a different set of standards, by a worldly set of standards, by the wealth and convenience and power that we would have hoped to accumulate. Look at verse 3. Paul says, the appeal we make, this, this urgent plea that we make with you, does not spring from error. 
He admits we're, we're not trying to trick you. We're actually trying to lay out the truth in front of you so that you can hear the truth and respond to it. I mean, Paul will admit, he's, he's writing this letter from Corinth, and he'll admit in his later letter, which he writes to the church in Corinth, that if he gets the message wrong, if it's not true, then it should not be believed. He'll tell them, if Jesus Christ was not raised from the dead, then what you believe is foolish, and you should give it up. See, Paul is, is pressing down and saying, no, no, I'm, I'm not, if this is an error, then you should set it aside. But that's not the way that the ancient world worked. They would, it, you would measure the success of an orator by how eloquent he was, by, by the, 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 the level of, of acclaim and applause he got from the crowd. You, you weren't there to measure whether it was true or not. Because in the ancient world, they would sometimes say things like, well, you know, if it works for you, then you should believe it. You know, if, if, if that's the way you would want to live your life, then, then I'll, I'll let you have that. Well, you see, we're, we're not really all that different in our century. We're willing to sort of let people believe whatever you want to believe. Maybe that's the way you view Christianity is just, just one of these truths out there. It's, it's my truth or your truth, but it's not the truth because there can't be the truth, we might think. But why, when we think about philosophical or theological or spiritual truths, would we assume that we can all just grab our own truth? I mean, if you were giving me directions to your house, you wouldn't just say, well, you know, you take some roads and then you come to a house and you find it. And you just, whatever road you would want, you choose your own road. I would say, your directions are terrible. I could be driving forever and never find your house. Or now, now some of you are good enough at, at cooking. And you, don't, you don't need the directions in front of you. You just kind of throw things in and you mix the pot until, it's, until it tastes good. But, but it, it's not that you can throw in any ingredients because you know the difference between baking soda and baking powder. I don't know the difference. You would have to write it down for me so that I don't mess up the recipe. Because sometimes what you put in matters. Sometimes the path you take matters. And, and why would we assume then, when we take more important things like spiritual truths, that it would be any less so. No, Paul is, is saying, no, what, I was, what, we were, what we were appealing to you was not based on an error. This is the truth. That's what we're getting at. The real truth of what Jesus did. He came, lived a perfect life. He died on the cross. He was raised from the dead. He has ascended to heaven. That's the message you need to hear. It doesn't spring from, from error. He also says, look, look again at verse 3, it doesn't come from impure motives. But those are exactly the motives that we would have expected. Because how do we measure the success of the, the orator who comes strolling through town? Well, it's the way sort of a rock star would measure success. How big the crowd was, how many women stayed after, and how much money he made on this tour. That's the same way that, that they measured success in the ancient world, through these impure motives of what will I get out of this? And Paul says, that's not the motive we came to you with. No, not for money, sex, and glory. We came because we were sent. Look at verse 4. We were sent by God. Paul then in verse 5 says, we, we didn't come using flattery, in, inflated or untrue statements to sort of puff you up and make you want to listen to us. I mean, that's a good way to get a crowd on your side. You make them think they're pretty smart. You put them in the position of, of you are in the position of judgment. You will decide today whether or not I have been successful. And you flatter their, their intelligence. You, 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 you flatter their, their success. And Paul says, no, no, 
Actually, when I came, think of the way the gospel comes. I didn't tell you you were great and wonderful and you had it all together. No, I told you the very opposite. You are worse than you imagined. Your your wrongdoing in life is not merely a a simple mistake in your past. It's rebellion against the God of the universe. See, the, the gospel starts with terrible news. Paul's message comes with the harsh truth about our sinful condition. So he didn't come with flattery. Again, verse 5, he didn't put on a mask to cover up his greed, seeking merely to gain wealth for himself. No, Paul says in verse 9, no, surely you remember, brothers, not, I didn't come as one who was greedy. I, I came in toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. We worked night and day. We weren't making money on this effort. We weren't sitting around with our feet up in, in luxury hotels and then showing up to preach. And we toiled night and day. And we, we know from Paul's ministry in Corinth, the book of Acts tells us that he was a tent maker, which is a phrase that, that we then use in the modern church to describe somebody who has a, a vocation outside the church in order to preach inside the church. But Paul's job was to physically make tents to stretch and get the leather in place. It was toil, labor, hard work with his own hands. And think of what the, the, the union hours were in the ancient world for a manual laborer. When the sun comes up, you start working. When the sun goes down, then you can stop working. Those are the hours that the Apostle Paul kept, toiling and laboring. He he admits back in in verse 6 that it is an apostle. By virtue of his office, he could have come and demanded the church pay for all of his expenses, but he didn't do that because he didn't want to be a burden. He came in toil and hardship, working night and day, toiling through the day with his hands through this intense labor, so that he could preach the gospel tonight. But I think it also means then that Paul was preaching the gospel during the day in his workshop. There among the other artisans, as as people came to place an order, they got not merely a tent, they got the gospel with the tent. As his fellow workers came and went, delivering supplies, taking payments, they heard the gospel. The wealthy in the city who, who had free time during the day would come. There is this preacher, not not in the town square where you might expect him. He's, he's toiling away among the artisans. Go there to hear his message. And so the wealthy would have wandered through. Paul preaching the gospel everywhere all the time. And don't you see how that can be helpful to us as a church? To view our work through a gospel lens? And I don't just mean that you view that everything you do is done for the glory and honor of God. Yes, that's, that's part of it. Your vocation is part of your calling. No, I mean that wherever you're working... Whatever role you have in the home, out of the home, you have the opportunity for the gospel to be applied every day. The gospel to be proclaimed every day. To announce it to the people that you're working alongside. To purposefully take a a lunch break and say, hey, I have something really important I'd like to talk to you about. You you, you heard me say in our announcements that, that we want you to build into your schedule an idea of the gospel's necessity of being proclaimed, which is why... I want you to pick a Sunday or a couple of Sundays and go serve at Hope. 
It may be that God will call you to, to stay and serve with this new congregation, much like this young church plant in Thessalonica. But even when you return here to faith, you'll come back seeing the gospel message needs to be proclaimed. And it's my hope that, that in seeing that urgency in a, in a church plant, that you should feel it here at faith too. But sometimes our 80 years or our bank statement can give you a comfort that, well, we'll be okay. In a church plant, you see that urgency. You feel the urgency of the apostle in his workshop. And so go and serve. Not only so that on a Sunday morning by giving up your service here at 1030, and you can come at 830, and then go there at 1030. Not only will you see the urgency in Sunday worship for proclaiming the gospel, but you'll take that with you on Monday. And you'll recognize that, that I have neighbors that should be joining me in church. I have friends who need to hear the gospel. I have classmates and teammates and, and, and those that, that, that are around me that need this gospel message. See, we tend to think of, of Paul's ministry by flipping and looking at the, at the map at the back of our Bible and the, the exotic locales through which he goes. I mean, he's, he's, he's out there in the Greek Isles. I mean, he's soaking up the sun. This is, that's the kind of trip I would like to take. No, he's toiling and laboring through the ordinary daily routine of survival and life for the sake of the gospel. And Paul says, the, the world may measure your success in verse 6 by the praise you get from other men. But he says, we were not looking for praise from you, not from you or anyone else. Verse 4, we're not trying to please men, we're trying to please God, God who sees our hearts, God who tests us. Paul wasn't concerned about his personal glory, his own reputation, the, the expanse of his influence. He was willing to set all of that aside for the sake of the gospel. And yet, in some sense, you see the irony. Who is the greatest missionary in church history? The Apostle Paul. So he is held in high esteem by us. Because he was willing to set it aside, he wasn't working for you and me for us to exalt his name. He was working for us to glorify the name of Jesus Christ. He was willing to give everything for the sake of the gospel. Paul will list in other places the, the toil, the hardship, the, the, the shipwrecks, the beatings that he endured for the sake of the gospel. He wasn't there to please men. And yet you and I, we spend our time worried about what other people will think of us. What will they think of the way I spend my time, the way I live? What will they think if I try and share the gospel with them? Won't they think it's naive and foolish? Won't it cost me something in terms of my reputation? Or, or consider the, the last argument you had with somebody, how, how you worried about what they were thinking about you and how you, for days, thought about the way you should have responded, how you could have, with this perfect retort, cut them off at the knees and won the argument, right? Or is, is that just me? Where we worry what other people think. It's a danger as a preacher to stand in front and to, to announce to you weekly in a public setting because I can play for the audience. I can play for the handshakes afterwards. Pleasing you rather than pleasing God. And yet we should not shrink from sharing the gospel. I mean, Paul says, in the face of strong opposition, he is bold to proclaim the gospel. And his boldness is rooted in the call that, that God has given in the gospel message itself. I mean, again, verse 2. 
We've already looked at this, but, but he says, it was with the help of our God that we dared to tell you his gospel. It's his. I, I just carry it around. This is good news that came directly from God for the world. It's his gospel message. Paul says there, look at verse 4, that he, he's, he's not, not, not coming from impure motives, but he speaks as men, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. God has tested him. God has called him. And so Paul's measurement of, of success is not, what kind of opposition did I run up against? While I'm hitting opposition here, this must be the wrong plan. No, that's not how he measures it. Did I get thrown into prison? That, that's not, that's not the, what is it? He's saying, who is it who called me? Who is it who's sending me? That's the measure of the gospel message. Whether I, whether I, I face opposition or, or great response to this gospel message. Because I have been called by God, entrusted with the gospel. I'm just the steward who does the work of, of my king. I simply serve at his command, whatever the outcome. Paul calls God himself to be his witness at verse 5. God is our witness. And you see what Paul is doing. He's, he's also trying to make sure the, the, the church in Thessalonica understands they too are witnesses. You know, brothers, that this is true. We, we could have been a burden to you, but, but surely you remember. He's calling them to be witnesses too of this calling. God has called me. You know how God has called me. You saw how I worked among you. God is his witness. And then in verses 8 and 9, the way that the apostle describes this gospel message, which it's just the word that means good news. It's an announcement of this is a great message, something you have to hear. In verses 8 and 9, he describes it as the gospel of God. It's God's message given by God. It's the love of God shown to the world. And so we preach the gospel of God. You see, Paul is bold because God has called him. God has equipped him for ministry. Paul is bold in the midst of suffering because the gospel itself involves suffering. Paul can be bold because Jesus himself suffered. That's the message. And so it would be foolish for Paul to think that this would be easy. Paul can be bold in his motives, pure in his actions, because God himself, Jesus Christ, perfectly obeyed the will of his Father. Paul can be bold in his work, not greedy, because he sees a Savior who came as a servant, giving up everything. And so Paul can be bold in his service to God, knowing that he is welcomed by God, even if he is rejected by men, because Jesus himself was rejected for his sake. See, without the gospel, if it's not true, then this would be the time to give up. Paul should give up this message. But you see, he can't give up. Because Jesus died in his place. Jesus has entrusted him with this gospel. And so he goes, and this isn't some, some stoic indifference to life, as if he just says, well, whatever happens, happens. No, when Paul describes his pain and suffering, it is pain and suffering. He doesn't try and, try and tell us, well, but, you know, it, it, it felt good. You know, it might not have felt good at the time, but it was really for my good, and I really see immediately how God was aware. No, he admits it's toil and labor. It's suffering. It's an imprisonment. He'll describe the, the constant pain that he lives with as, as, as if there's a thorn in his flesh. He understands the pain, but he continues through it because of the gospel. We have been received by God, we have received this good news, and so we can 
share it. We've been welcomed by God, and so we can endure rejection by men. Jesus died for our sins, therefore our sins need not define us. Jesus cleanses us from our impurities, and so we can live lives filled with pure motives. We are loved and welcomed by God. We have an eternal embrace that lets us push through the rejection of men, the fear of man. We toil and labor for the gospel. We should live with a bold commitment. And so Paul is bold in gospel proclamation, but but before we, before we conclude, we need to see that, that he's also very gentle. There's an urgency that will press through any opposition. But, but notice the, the tender language. This, this, as one commentator says, deeply affectionate language. It's, it's really the most tender kind of words fil- found in any of Paul's letters written to this church. Look back at the image Paul gives in verse 7. In contrast to showing up and saying, I'm an apostle, serve me. What does he do? Verse 7. But we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. A mother with a child in her arms, soothing and comforting her child. A nursing mother providing for, for his needs and nourishment. That is how Paul served in the church, as one who was gentle. And sadly, maybe that has not been your experience in the church, but it should be. That's the experience you will have with Christ, one who is gentle and loving with you. So that Paul continues in verse 8, We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. There's a passion and a tenderness, a compassion here in the words of the apostle. Because Paul's boldness is not a, not a personal boldness. It's a gospel boldness. It's a personal humility because he sees his sinfulness, but it's a gospel boldness because he sees the power of the gospel. And so some of us, some of us need the the kick in the pants today to be more bold, to find that conversation, to make it happen, to talk with our neighbor, to, to sit down with pen to paper today and write that letter, to pick up a phone and dial one you love so dear and say there's something important you have to hear. But others of us, we, we also need that reminder. Say it gently. If necessary, with genuine tears in your eyes as you plead, as you make an appeal for the sake of the gospel, you do so like a mother caring for her infant child. And all of us need the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done to motivate us. Because if we do it in our own power, as soon as we hit verse 2, suffering and insult, it's done. I'm out. The only way we can endure and keep going is if the gospel motivates us. We look to what Jesus has done and we respond. The gospel sends us forth in great boldness with genuine compassion for those who need to hear. Earlier this week, we were, as a family, reminiscing on Father's Day about one of my childhood memories. My dad is a Baptist preacher. He was here in the the early service. And my growing up years, we would often spend spring and summer weekends taking the gospel, not going to church, but taking church somewhere else. And so one of the places we went was to Wildwood, New Jersey. There was a big car show on the boardwalk. You know, the fanciest, brightest colors, you know, shined, you know, brighter. Like you, you as kids didn't dare get near that car, lest you would, you would cause some damage. 
And so my dad, as the preacher, was invited by the Hot Rod Association in, in South Jersey to come and to preach on Sunday morning. It was going to be a weekend-long event, and so to come and preach. And so we show up. It's my dad, my mom, me, and my two younger siblings, so the five of us. And as the worship service time is scheduled time is about to start, there are a total of five people present. It's just us. And so my sister looks at my dad and says, Dad, are you still going to preach? Like, I mean, basically, like, can we get out of here a little quicker? There's nobody here. And he says, yes, I'm still going to preach. And then she, being more sensitive than either my brother or I have ever been, said, Dad, are you going to cry? And he said, maybe. Because this gospel needs to be heard. And there are people there, 30 feet away, wandering the boardwalks, who don't know this message. And so that Sunday he preached just to us. A couple of months later, my dad got off the phone and my mom said, well, who was it? Well, it was the Hot Rod Association. They asked me to come back and preach again next year. <laughs> and she said, you could not be dumb enough to say yes. I said, well, we're going. Well, they changed the venue. They adjusted the time. And at the next service, there were 75 people who came to hear the gospel. And then they started hosting this event every six months. And so six months later, there were 150 and then they moved him inside the convention center so that whether you were in the service or not, you were going to listen to the preacher. But there were 300 people gathered in the rows listening with many more scattered. But that's the kind of boldness, a compassionate boldness that should move us forward. So you have people in your life to whom you are called to share the gospel. Someone who otherwise will not hear it. You are entrusted with this message. This is good news given by God himself for you to take to the world. And so we go with an urgency, a gospel commitment that this gospel has transformed my life. It must transform my neighbors, my family members, my teammates, my classmates. They need to hear this good news. And so go this week with boldness, with a compassion, with an urgency that will, will not let any opposition stand in your way because you have been sent by God with his gospel, and God is the one who will help you. He is sending us with good news. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, I ask that you would give us a gospel boldness to share this good news with our neighbors, our friends, our teammates. Lord, I think of my fear and weakness my hesitation in sharing the gospel. And so, Lord, make me bold this week. Lord, do that work in each one of us. Do it in the lives of, of our, our church. Lord, do it in the lives of our students who are serving on our missions team. Make them bold, not merely when they're on this trip serving neighbors, but as they come back and serve here. Lord, let us see the, the grace that has been poured out on us. Father in heaven, let us respond to the good news that Jesus Christ died for our sins. Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. And so we lift our voices to give praise to him. We come in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen.